0: stand by. Do I look good, you guys? Do I look camera worthy? Good. <laughs> Liars. Chris or Terry, would you mind bringing back the uh, attendance sheet? Okay, and the DVD. Thank you. Good afternoon and welcome to Purdue University, the Sirius Security Seminar. Our speaker today is Professor Sheng Yu Zheng, who is a Sirius Affiliated Faculty Member from Computer Science here at Purdue. Sheng Thank you for the introduction, Joe. Um, good afternoon, everyone. Today I'm going to talk about uh, program analysis in security. This is pretty much uh, uh, some of our work, and some of it actually belong to a uh, student sitting uh, in the audience. Uh, Today I'm going to cover three topics, uh, binary transformation, memory forensics, and reverse engineering. All these three uh, applications, I would say, they're all driven by uh, program analysis. So what's a program analysis? Program analysis is to analyze your code or your program execution to identify problems, for example, security vulnerabilities uh, in your program or things like that. So these three topics, let me give you a little bit of an introduction. Binary transformation, what does it do? So, for example, you give me your uh, Windows Word. I'm gonna insert some code into your Windows Word, or I'm gonna extract some code from in Windows Word, right? So to make it do something slightly different, right? This code could be malicious, could be benign, but it just adds some additional semantics into your program, right? So I transform, in other words, I transform your program to do something slightly different. So, what is memory forensics? Memory forensics basically is that, you know, uh, it's like just forensic techniques, right? So, this time instead of looking at uh, something like something on your hard disk, we're looking at your memory uh, image. We take take a snapshot of your memory, then we try to identify important information from memory snapshots, for example, your password, your contact list. This will be very helpful for, um, you know, um, law enforcement. So, the third one, reverse engineering, what does it do? Basically, what we're saying is that, for example, you download a piece of code from internet, and then you're not sure this piece of code is doing something that is claimed that it's doing, right? Then we actually analyze this software, try to reverse engineer the hidden behavior of the application, and expose all this hidden behavior to you, right? So, I will try to make it informal, and then we're going to skip a lot of technical details and give you the basic ideas. I show you some demos. If you are interested in the technical details, uh, please just raise your hand and then I' happy to answer questions. Right. So the first one, binary transformation. So binary transformation has a lot of uh, applications. For example, you can use it to debug, you can use it to profile performance of your programs. For example, you know, my app is running, very slow. Or it's taking a lot of energy. You know, what's going on there? So usually, what people do is they're going to insert a small piece of code into your program and try to monitor the execution of the program, right? Then we give you some profile result, and then from there you can understand what's the problem with your code. If you ever use things like for gprof, jprof, those are the probably most popular profiling tool. So those two actually will transform your application, right, um, to collect such data. And what we're doing here is that essentially we transform your binary executable without requiring your, your source code. <clears throat> of course, uh, you can do security hardening. I guess by now you should know that security hardening is to add a small piece of code into your program so that you can avoid a lot of uh, security problems. Right? So again, you have to transform your program. <clears throat> now there have been a lot of uh, tr- uh, program transformation tools. For example, you can do s- uh, source transformation or source instrumentation if you have your source code, right, you have your p- compiler. But the problem with those techniques is that they require source code. What if I, I, I dynamically lower a piece of uh, library code, right? Then you don't have the source code, right? so You cannot you cannot transform that code, you cannot instrument the code. Now of course uh, then people try to look at binary instrumentation, binary transformation. There you don't need the source code, but of course then you have to handle a lot of uh, difficult challenges. For example, you know how you're gonna uh, uh, handle the register, how you're gonna handle indirect code, indirect jumps, right? So binary actually look completely different from source code. If you ever disassemble a piece of code, right, you look, you know, all you see just instructions, registers, memory locations. You never have, you know, uh, a for loop, while loop, or variable name. You don't even have those information, right? <coughs> now, then, our goal essentially is to uh, to do the following: try to instrument commodity binary programs or even the kernels, right? So, in the in the presence of uh, all the possible anti instrumentation schemes. So one thing I want to talk about is that if you try to apply such a binary transformation technique on some binary that are probably malicious, for example, they usually have cell protection scheme. Right? They will detect whether you know, this, uh, this piece of code has been tampered with by anybody. Right? If that happens, they're going to just uh, quit on you. Right? So then one of our goals is that we try to do this stupidly, so that even if we transform your code, uh, that code cannot detect uh, our presence. Mm-hmm. So then we talk about two pieces of work. Uh, both of the, I mean, all this work I talk about today, they actually uh, uh, kind of published in, in top-tier conferences. The first one is Bistro. Bistro is a technique that allows you to uh, extract a piece of code from your existing binary. For example, you give me your Firefox compiled Firefox or Chrome. You're going to extract a functionality out of Chrome, and then we can uh, port it to another binary. Okay. So the second capability of Bistro is that it can insert a piece of code into a, an existing binary executable. Right? And then it works on a large commodity programs. we have tried Windows Word, Firefox, and we have tried malware. One of the, the, the demo I'm going to show to you is that we actually extract components from existing malware, okay? three components from existing malware, and then we compose a new malware using those uh, components, okay? so using our tool. <clears throat> right, that's Bistro. And Spider is you can think of as a, a stealthy version of Bistro. So here we actually do it in a stealthy way by using a, a, a hardware virtualization. Right? <clears throat> um So if I will give you a little bit of idea about the high-level design of Bistro. Then I will um, go into the, uh, the case study. Right. So Bistro essentially it works like this. Okay. You're given a piece of executable. We're going to stretch. How you're going to How are you going to insert piece of code into a a existing executable? Think of that, right? So if you simply just uh, if you ever play with, for example, uh, you know, advanced editor like Ultra Editor, right? You try to open your your binary code and then you insert instruction into the binary. See what happens? Going to crash on you, right? It's going to break. Okay. So what we're doing here is that we try to Get your binary, then we're going to stretch your binary. Stretch your binary so that we create holes, and then you can insert instruction into those holes. Right? How do we stre- stretch your binary to create holes? For example, you know, in binary you usually have this uh, jump instruction, right? for example, jmp5, jump5. What does it mean? So can anyone tell me what does it mean? Jump to the, the offset5. right? So if I want to insert instruction you know, right after that jump instruction, what should I do? I change the jump five to jump six, right? Okay, that's the basic idea. Of course, there were a lot of uh, more uh, challenging cases. What if the jump the jump instruction has a dynamic computed address? What what if it's a jump eax, right? Then you have to you know do more than that. Okay, but of course uh, uh, that's uh, that's related to our our, our uh, design, um, which I I think I will skip. So this diagram actually kind of uh, illustrates how, how things work. So on the top, you see the binary one. Um, it's uh, first executable we, we provide to the system. And binary two is another executable provided to our system. Then what we want to see here is that we want to extract the brown component from binary one and the blue components from binary two. And then we have three components. And then we want to insert these three components into another existing binary, the so target binary. Right. The way that we do it is that we're going to stretch that existing binary, which is the yellow one. Okay. We create those holes, and then we insert the, uh, um, uh, the 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 blue components and the brown components into the extracted or or stretched binary, so that we get a new binary. And this binary will contain the original yellow semantics and also the inserted semantics from the blue and the brown components. All right. So, any questions? <coughs> So the basic algorithm. Gonna skip. Um, so we handle indirect calls. Like I said, you know, we have a jump eax, those kind of instructions. We are able to handle them. Um, if you have callback function, callback function is another problem because, uh, for example, you know, you you usually the callback function works like this: you provide address to the library, right? In the library, we use that PC address, the instruction address. We call back your your uh, user function. Now the problem is that, but we already stretched your user code. Then your user function entry now become you know offset, right? Then you have to fix the offset. Otherwise, when the library makes the callback invocation, they're going to call it wrong place, and then you're going to get a crash. Okay? <coughs> so we handle all that. So basically. And then another problem is that you need to handle the data references. What does it mean? Because uh, when you ever disassemble a piece of code, usually you see there's a session called a data session. Okay? What does it do? It actually contains all these global data structures. Okay, This data global data structure usually may contain information like your function pointers. You need to fix those function pointers in order to uh, make your technique work. Okay, <coughs> uh, Then we implement we implement this uh, technique as part of the uh, IDA Pro plugin. If you ever use IDA, I mean, a lot of you, I guess, uh, use IDA to disassemble like uh, binary code, right? Um, we implement our technique as uh, part of IDA, and then uh, our technique currently supports Windows PE binaries. For example, you give us uh, uh, your Windows Word or Windows, uh, uh, you know, uh, PowerPoint. We actually can perform a lot of transformation on your on your code right? without any source code. Mm-hmm. And there are some uh, performance data I want to show you. And this is the overhead. You look at the last three bars, which are the average uh, overhead of our technique. The red bar actually represents the runtime overhead. You can see that in most cases, on, on average, we only introduce two percent overhead. This is really attributed to um, handling the indirect calls. Right? You look at the blue bar, which is the last one. I mean, uh, on the on the on your right hand side. That's the file size increase. So we increase your file size by probably 10%. Okay, So if you give us a uh, a binary, we actually increase the size because we have to store some meta information for us to, to work, for our technique to work. Right. <clears throat> um, so you can see that we have tried a, large, I mean, a set of uh, Windows large programs, including uh, you know, Acrobat Reader, Chrome, we actually have also tried you know, Firefox malware and all that. So later on I'm going to show you a demo. All right. Extract and reuse binary components. I think this demo is less interesting compared to the second one, which is so-called the malware stitching. All right. So we extract components, or extract payloads from existing large malware, and then we compose a new mal- malware from those uh, uh, you know, extracted components. So Configure-C actually is uh, that's a famous uh, malware, I guess a lot of you have uh, probably have studied it. And then we try to extract three components from this uh, malware. And this malware actually contains a lot of uh, different kind of payload. we're only interested in three of them. The first one is get PID, which is get a process ID of a given process. The second is inject. Inject essentially is inject the malware itself into an existing process. Okay? The third one is a so-called hook DNS. Essentially, we hook the DNS lookup function so that we redirect your DNS lookup to a different, you know, uh, different location. Right? <clears throat> so these three functions essentially already exist, you know, in the malware, and now we want to extract those components and we want to build a malware out of these uh, extracted components. And assume that. Uh, we already extracted these three components. What we want to do is to implement this logic. Okay? This is a very simple logic. The logic is that we compare whether the current process actually is inside IE. If this is the IE process, then we're going to hook the DNS. That means we're going to intercept the DNS uh, queries inside IE. Right? Otherwise, if this is not an IE process, what we would do is that we're going to get the IE PID, and then we're going to inject the malware into the IE process, so that when IE executes, our malicious payload, which is the DNS hijacking, we will actually get triggered. Right? So this is a very simple uh, logic, right? but we actually make use of the three components that we extract to, to implement this simple malware. Mm-hmm. And then the goal is to prevent IE to assess the Microsoft.com. Right? Mm-hmm. So, like I said, our two have two aspects. One is to extract; the others uh, allow you to insert the components. So, this is the uh, executable of configure. Dot, uh, uh, dot and then we'll we obtained this uh, sample actually from SRI. If you know SRI is one of the most uh, famous vendor on analysis. and this is the script that allow us to extract the three components, and this script essentially will invoke the functionality of Bistro, right? <clears throat> Because this this is the uh, we now we uh, open IDA, we then uh, we uh, disassemble the malware, and these are the three functions that we try to extract. Right? the first one is a hook DNS. Mm-hmm. You can see. And this one to show that if you want to extract a piece of components, remember that the piece of component actually will assess data in your, uh, for example, in your global session, right? So you may assess some variables that you know that's part of your binary, but it's not in the code; it's in the data session of the code, right? If you know that a piece of binary usually consists of multiple sessions, they have data session, they have code session, right? And the data that, that you assess by your code usually you know reside in the in the in the data session. So when you extract the piece of code, you have to extract the corresponding data entry as well. Right? So this graph shows you that we also extract those data entries. Now we, we execute this job. <coughs> then we got three binary components, okay, corresponding to the uh, the three functionality that we're interested in. They're pretty small compared to the original size of configure. Configure originally is like one hundred seventy-two k and now we only extract component with the two k, six k and two k. Just a small piece of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, next thing is that we try to make use of these three components and compose a new malware. Again, we're going to use Bistro. We stretch the uh, original binary, insert those uh, three components. So, the way we do it is that um, we actually write a small program like this. This program actually corresponds. To the four-line logic that I presented earlier, which is tested whether I'm in IE, otherwise I will insert, inject myself into IE. Right. So this is the implementation, but all we do is that we actually provide empty functions for this uh, hook DNS, and then the uh, also uh, get process ID. Those functions they are empty right now in our program. Okay. We compile, it, we get a piece of code, but the piece of code only contains three functions, uh, empty functions for those. Uh, Three parts, and then later on we use Bistro to replace those uh, empty function with the component that we extracted. That's how we compose a new Malware. All right. <clears throat> you can see the highlighted uh, places are the three function calls, and right now they're all dummy. Otherwise, they have an empty body. Right. Then we're going to replace with our extracted components. <clears throat> And also, we let our uh, malware to pop up some messages uh, to show that it works. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now we compile our, our small C code, we get a DLL uh, library. Then we use our Bistro tool to insert those components into the compiled DLL. And so now we got a new DLL, which is have the size of 12K. So now we're gonna test. We're gonna execute our new malware. See what happens. So we first start a clean IE to assess Microsoft.com. Everything looks fine. No problem. Okay. And then we're gonna execute our malware. But our malware, since it's a DLL file, you have to use a debugger to trigger the DLL. Right? So here we are using a immunity debugger, and then by executing this DLL, we inject itself into uh, our IE process. Now this IE, uh, it become uh, infected. So now it has been infected. We try to assess Microsoft.com. Now this time you can see that. Okay, it's the same process. We we're doing a dynamic uh, infection of uh, IE process, and then now we deny your DNS uh, access. Right? Okay. Any questions? Is there a particular reason for running it on uh, XP? The demo there. Does, uh. it, does it work in seven? seven? That's even easier. We show it on XP because XP is more difficult. Because uh, there you have those binary, you don't have a relocation table. I mean, because at that time, uh, just randomization probably is not as popular as nowadays. Okay. In Windows 7, because you have the relocation table, uh, should become much easier. So for legacy code, since you don't have a, a relocation table, handling indirect code and, and, and uh, indirect jumps uh, become much difficult. So uh, we are showing the difficult case instead. Any other questions? All right. Let's see. Let's Just stop right here. All right. <coughs> so, all right. Spider, uh I will just quickly go through Spider because uh um, there was some student uh, waiting to see his own work being presented. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and Spider essentially is a, uh, like I said before, it's a stealthy version of uh, Bistro. Now, this time you want to do it uh, a stealthy way, right? We don't want the, any of your uh, the malware or any of your, for example, if you run a game program, usually they have self protection, okay? You run the game program on a the debugger, they're gonna just shut down on you, right? So, in, in, in order to kind of uh, intercept the, the execution of a game program or malware, you have to do it stealthy, okay? Or you add something into the, the game program, you have to do a stufy. Then basically, what we do is that we leverage uh, hardware virtualization mm-hmm. um, to achieve this goal, and we can instrument your program, including uh, malware, including your game program, which have the self-protection. Now we kind of hide our presence through virtualization, but we are using hardware virtualization, which is much faster than software. I mean uh, the uh, the other kind of uh, uh, virtualization, right? <coughs> so this is the basic idea, I'm going to skip that. And this is the result, basically what we are showing here is that without technique, we are able to you know, uh, avoid all the existing uh, kind of a protection scheme. Uh, so these are the, the the program, the target, the first column shows the target, essentially these are the popular self-protection uh, uh, schemes. You can run, if you have a program, you run those programs, they're going to insert some self-protection mechanism into your code and then we are able to show that our technique actually can evade all this uh, technique. Um, and of course, uh, our technique um, has some uh, overhead, but overall it's much faster than the state of art. Right? All right, I will go into the second project, uh, which is memory forensics. Again, um, all these techniques are driven by program analysis. Analyze your program, analyze your program execution then uh, to achieve our, our goal. Right? Memory forensics. So what do we do in memory forensics? This, actually, this is an image, you have a RAM, and then you have some data, and the data look uh, very ugly, they're all bits and bytes, right? and if you want to understand some information, for example your password, your contact list from this memory image, it becomes very difficult. Right? How do you interpret this piece of memory? Right? Okay. But our goal is still, you know, we want to scan this memory image, identify some important information, like your password. Mm-hmm. Um, memory forensics, um, besides the application in forensic analysis, crime scene uh, reconstruction, they can also be used uh, in uh, many other applications, for example, kernel rootkit detection. Right? So kernel rootkit is a malware at the, the kernel level, so kernel rootkit usually will hide itself. Right? The way that it hides itself is to el- uh, eliminate its presence in the uh, process task list in your kernel. So when you execute a, pro, uh, a command like `ps`, right, what will happen? You go through a a linked list in the kernel, which so-called a task list. Okay, this task list actually will link all the active processes right together. And then when you call the `ps`, we're going to traverse individual nodes in your linked list, each node representing a a live process. Okay. So then, let's say the middle one essentially is the rootkit process. The way that solve is that. How about I dislink myself from the link list? Okay. And now you have a shorter linked list. This time you run ps. you are going to show two processes, right? Compared to the previous one, which showed three processes. Now, in other words, you won't see a rear process, uh, which is the rookie process, right? Now, but this node in the middle cannot completely hide itself. It's still in your memory, right? Because otherwise, you don't have the PCB to run the, the process. Okay. So what we would do using a uh, memory forensics is that how about we scan your memory, identify all the task list data structures, and then, then we're going to expose the one that uh, that tried to hide itself. Right? Mm-hmm. So now the, the the key challenge is that how do we identify uh, important information from those bits and bytes of your memory image, right? that's the most important uh, challenge. Now the state of art usually um, you know um, does this, to identify some magic numbers in your data structure. For example, let's say uh, your, your task list, your, your task uh, data structure usually associated with uh, some magic number that's the last field in the data structure. Right? Identify that t- uh, magic number, you're going to scan the memory to identify the presence of that magic number, and as long as you see that magic number uh, occurs, then it's an instance of that data structure. Okay? Then you can see what's the problem of such a technique, you can imagine. This magic number may not be unique, right? So there's a, a lot of coincidences that you have, uh, you know, other occurrences of the same number in your memory, right? Then you find a lot of false positive. And uh, so our approach actually um, falls into program analysis, and then we have a line of work actually start from siggraph, and then we have a second project with dimsum, and then we have the discrete, which uh, just won the uh, the best student award. I mean, actually, this is a work by Brendan sitting right there. Uh, um, it's won the Best Student uh, uh, Paper Award in, in uh, last year's, this year's security. But the basic idea is that um, let's say you have some data structure, you have some information that you want to extract from the memory. okay? And this, this information usually corresponds to some data structure definition in your program. right? So look at the task list. The task list actually corresponds to you know, three data structures, if you look at the, the source code of the kernel, usually that's what you see. Right? <clears throat> now from this data structure declaration, what can we do? We can construct a signature. okay? So this signature looks like this. Task s means that if the memory location starting at x, if that is an instance of task, then we can infer. The memory location starting at x plus zero got to be a pointer pointing to a thread data structure, right? That's actually according to the data structure declaration on the left-hand side, right? And then also, uh, if you look at the second piece, which is uh, you know the offset x plus four, again is a pointer pointing to a data structure mm. Okay, this have to be respected. These are the constraints of your uh, data structure, right? Now, what essentially have is that we can, if we see this a piece of memory locations, if the first one, the first word, is a pointer pointing to a thread, and the second one is a pointer pointing to mm, the third one is a pointer pointing to signal. From that information, then we can infer with high confidence that you know the original pointer x gotta be an instance of a task, right? That's the opposite inference, right? Now what we are doing here is that we are building a graphical structure. Right? This graphical structure looks like this. Right? The root node essentially represents a, a structure of task. Um, with that, uh, it means that the, the first offset got to be a threat, and the second offset got to be an mm, the third offset got to be a signal, the fourth one got to be a task. And this one is just one layer of uh, signature, essentially the threat. Right. The threat. Look at the first field, which is the threat field. The threat itself also has its internal structure. Right. We can further expand it to, to kind of enhance our uh, our signature. Look at this. If you want to identify instance of threat, and the first uh, field of the threat data structure gotta be a pointer pointing to a task data structure. Right. Again, now we kind of ex- keep expanding our uh, our graph, and we have a uh, you know gradually growing signature of your data structure. Right now, then we call this one is the data is the signature of your critical piece of information. Now we start using this piece of uh, signature to scan your memory image to identify uh, occurrences of those data structures. Right. Let's take a look at the uh, uh, like take a look at the example. So here you can see that um, on the top essentially is a memory image, and the bottom essentially is a, a graphical signature. We want to use that graphical signature on the bottom to scan the memory image on the top, right? And right now I want to determine if the, uh, the underlined uh, memory location is an instance of task or not. Okay? What I would do is that now look at the first uh, offset, which is uh, you know the first four offset, and we try to determine if they are Pointers pointing to thread, mm, signal, and task, right? Then I got the reference based on those uh, three, uh, those four pointers, that we get to you know the other data structure to see whether you know uh, this one should correspond to a uh, data structure of uh, thread, and the second one should correspond to a pointer pointing to mm, right? And the third one, when I reference that pointer, I will go to a location. This location gonna be a uh, an instance of signal, right? and the fourth one got to be a point-to-point point to a task. Right? So if all these constraints are satisfied, then we identify an instance of a task, right? okay? This is basically, we use a graph to scan your memory image to identify the uh, instances. Any questions? Of uh, course, you know this is just a basic idea. There are a uh, number of challenges. You know, what if you know your multiple data structures share the same, sig- uh, you know, same uh, graphical signatures? That may happen, right? In this case, we're gonna uh, expand your signature to make them unique, so that all the uh, important data structures have their own different uh, signatures. So skip all those uh, uh, details. So if we have an implementation our implementation actually is on QMU. it's um uh, actually it's not on QMU. we just use QMU to collect your memory snapshot right mm-hmm. then here's the sum result right? um the first column shows the important uh, data structure that we're interested in for example the first one corresponds to the task uh, struct the second one is you know the threads, which tell you how many threads are present in 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 your current memory right mm-hmm. And we actually use QMU, which is a virtual machine, to identify all the true instances, and then the sig graph, the two columns correspond to sig graph, actually are, are, are our result. The value invariant corresponds to the state of R, which used the magic number to scan the memory. You can see that, you know, for our case, we have pretty much zero percent false positive, right And in comparison, the state of R, in some cases, they have almost all of the reported cases are false positive. That's because the magic number are just too uh, general. They're not unique enough to identify a lot of uh, bogus uh, instances. Look at the false negative; we never miss an uh, important uh, information, and then um, the the compar- uh, the competitor actually miss some of them. <coughs> we also miss a little bit of information, uh, which I will skip. Now this one, we actually evaluate our technique on the rootkit detection. These are the number of existing rootkits And then we simply just identify the task structure or the module essentially which is similar to task structure. It's also a linked list which we link all the active modules together. When you use the ps command, this is the number of uh, objects that are reported by the command. Right? For example, you, you, you run ps, this is the list of processes that are reported by ps. For example, here you show um, uh, 23. You see 23 uh, processes listed by PS. But when you run our scanner, we we were able to find one more. What is that additional one? That's a, that's a rootkit process, right? So that that tells us okay, our technique is able to detect the rootkit processes, even though they hit themselves by right, dislinking them from the linguist. list. Right? <coughs> Now, um, SIGGRAPH, essentially, um, you know, it still has some limitation. The, the, the problem, essentially, lies in this. What if I have a data structure? A data structure has some field, for example, like integer field. Okay? And then you scan the memory, you find the memory has a, z- a value of zero. Should I consider that zero as an integer, or should I consider that zero as a pointer? Well, pointer may also have a value of zero, right? It may well be a character, right? It's an n of a string. So you cannot say for sure this is a integer or not, right? So what we are saying here is that you know fundamentally this is a probabilistic inference problem. You can never say for sure. The memory forensics you cannot say for sure. All you can see is, all you can say is that you know this is probably or this is likely a integer, this is likely a pointer, right? So dim sum essentially we extend our technique on Sig now we make it a probabilistic inference technique. Now instead of saying, okay, this got to be an integer, and then rely on the fact this is an integer, then now we're going to say that, okay, this value, we have 30% of chance is an integer, 30% of chance of, uh, of it is a pointer, 30% of chance essentially is a character. Then we aggregate all these uh, probabilities along the graphical signature, and on the top, we're going to compute a, a confidence. And this confidence will tell us, okay, with all this uh, guess you have made, all right, Then we say that okay, now I have 50% of confidence this one is a uh, task uh, structure. Of course 50% is not good enough, usually what we get is 90% this is a task list. So basically what we're saying is that we aggregate information from all the leaves. Okay, Uh, Aggregate all your belief on the leaf nodes and then we get a uh, probability on the top. So we skip that and we get into the uh, exciting uh, discrete. Um, okay, let's skip all that. This is a, you know that this is a very famous uh, probabilistic inference graph. I right? believe propagation, if you ever work on this. <clears throat> so discrete. All right, the basic idea of discrete is that you know the state of R before discrete, um, those. State of our memory forensic uh, technique, you report something like this. Okay, they're going to tell you this region of your memory actually corresponds to a JPEG file, and that piece of memory corresponds to a, a PDF file. But does it help the law enforcement? It doesn't, right? Because you want to see the content of the figure, you want to see the content of the PDF file, right? Because they simply tell you, okay, this region, this P, uh, this uh, bits and bytes actually is a JPEG file, you know. Does it help? Right. You, I want to see the content. What's going on in that p- figure? Right? So basically, this could solve the problem of content rendering of your forensic evidence. Render your, your evidence so that the law enforcement will have intuitive understanding of the evidence. Instead of having you know those uh, hackers will point you, okay, this is uh, you know that figure on on the screen actually correspond to a PDF. You have you know all those link going on. But it doesn't help. Doesn't help law enforcement. Right. <clears throat> um, so here I will just give you the, uh, the brief idea, and then, um, uh, then I will go to a demo. <clears throat> so how do we render the, the stuff in the memory? Okay. So remember that the information in your memory actually is different from the artifact on a disk. For example, when you load a JPEG file from the disk and then you put it into the memory, the internal data structure actually is actually completely different, not completely different, it will be different from your your, your image on a, on a disk. right? If you simply just run a JPEG viewer on that piece of memory, you're not going to get anything because it's just different from your hard disk uh, representation. So the observation, the key observation here is that you know the, the application that brings the JPEG image from the disk to the memory usually has the logic to render that image. right? So otherwise why would you bring a JPEG file into the memory? So, for example, and you have an application which will, will read a uh, that Acrobat reader, um, sorry, read a PDF file from the disk, right? You also have the logic that will render the PDF to the screen, right? So, what we're going to say here is that if you have this technique like Bistro, we can extract a piece of code from the application. Why don't we just extract that logic, right? That render the uh, evidence. From the application, and then we run we run it uh, uh, independently as a uh, memory render, right? (coughs) So that's the that's the key idea. (coughs) So um, skip all this uh, technical details. So we go right to the demo. So yeah, this is a PDF file, and then uh, this PDF file is kind of like evidence of uh, some crime. And then uh, this crime actually was committed by Brandon, and then uh, Brandon tried to uh, hide uh, hide his crime by changing, by modifying this PDF file, right, now it changed to. William Gates, basically try to you know, blame William Gates for that. Now at that moment, the law enforcement uh, you know, come. <clears throat> they, they freeze the computer and then they will try to uh, get help from us. Right. But since uh, Brandon hasn't got a chance to save the file to disk, right, so all you have is just the memory on the computer. And now we try to scan the computer, try to de- identify what Brandon was doing when the crime scene, you know, uh when the crime occurred, right? Mm-hmm. So this actually the the detail of the technique, I will skip that because I haven't explained how the technique works. We go right to the uh So this is how, how you run uh, run discrete. We actually get a, a scanner, and then you're providing the uh, uh, the suspect memory. You also have to provide the original binary, which is the one that uh, that added. You know the Brandon was using to edit the, the PDF. Okay. And you have to provide some random input to the to the editor. Now it starts scanning, so at the end, I have to skip a lot of uh, this uh, the demo because I haven't explained the, the detail of our technique, right? so essentially at the end we generate something like this. We scan the entire uh, memory, as long as we identify an instance of a PDF, if you're going to render a PDF, that will become a file that's visible by any other uh, Acrobat, uh, any other PDF reader, okay? If you save those uh, rendered evidences into the disk, that's why you, fi- you find that, okay, we have one evidence identified by our scanner and renderer, so this is actually a legitimate uh, PDF file. When you open that PDF file, you will see that there's a William Gates there. That's exactly what happened uh, when the law enforcement came, right? And remember that that file was never saved to the disk; it only occurred in the memory. Right? Brandon was doing was modifying the PDF file, and he wasn't able to save it to the disk. and Law enforcement came, and then you know all we have is just the memory. Okay? He was able to close the application, but the memory is still there, right? Any questions about the scenario? So uh, I think uh, we have some more exciting work going on, uh, basically. So what we can do lately is that uh, we are able to uh, reverse engineer, or we are able to identify your uh, preview images from your Android phone. Okay? For example, you have your Android phone, you uh, turn on the camera, and then you preview the images, but you're not taking the pictures. Right? So then, uh, some important things happen. You forgot to press the. You for, forgot to, to take the picture, right? But using our technique, we can still extract those uh, preview images that you, you you know you have kind of a uh, uh, right? And then that will include the important thing that you actually missed, right? mm-hmm. And uh, we believe that uh, memory forensics has a lot of opportunities in uh, mobile uh, applications. Um, and then that's what we are heading these days. <clears throat> Any questions? Yes? When you mean by that uh, you are doing memory scanning, so do you also consider the virtual memory as well? Or just the physical RAM? Ooh, it doesn't matter. I think um, we do both. Okay. Essentially, the difference between the physical RAM and the virtual memory essentially whether you have the mapping information or not. Right? So we, our technique doesn't assume the uh, the presence of the mapping information. In other words, we actually scan your physical memory. Okay. That would be, um, I would say, it's a superset of uh, virtual memory. Okay. questions? question? This image actually summarizes what we can extract using Discrete. You can see that we render a lot of things, including map, JPEG images, uh, some log information, uh, PDF file. So, all this, as long as the application has the logic to render such information, we are able to extract it and render the important information to your screen, the law enforcement screen. I have. uh, uh, a few more minutes, and then uh, I will try to um, quickly go through our third topic, which is reverse engineering, Right. So what we do here is that the scenario like this. You download a piece of code from internet, and then it looks like it's doing something uh, useful for you, but there may be a hidden behavior, right? So how do you identify such hidden behavior? If you use a disassembler usually doesn't give you anything because uh, the binary may be packed, may be obfuscated, right? So you run IDA many times that you find that IDA will give you something completely not visible or completely not reasonable. And how do we how do we re- reverse engineer the possible behavior of your binary? Okay, then have all the hidden behavior. Now see here, this is a, a that we recently developed, so-called XForce. So the idea is that we're going to force your binary to execute. So what does it, what does it mean? So when you download a piece of uh, uh, children uh, application. This malicious payload usually is protected by some kind of conditions. It wouldn't trigger the malicious payload unless the right condition is met. Right? So either the, the, today is some special day, or either the system is the right system I want to attack. Otherwise, I do not execute my uh, malicious payload. Right? So, but you cannot hide from our technique because our technique is so-called X force. We force it to execute. So, the the, the what what's the observation? So what is this kind of protection? This kind of protection, when you look down to the binary level, they're usually just a condition of jump, isn't it? Right? You, you compare with some condition, and then you jump based on the comparison result. What if you re- change your, your, your comparison result? Uh, even though you say that, okay, today is uh, December 10th. No, our engine will say that today is not. We just negate your branch outcome. Then you, you are forced to execute, right? Of course, the, this is the basic idea. There are a lot of challenges. Now you go ahead with your, your, your debugger and you try to change the branch outcome which I believe you can do what will happen you'll crash on you probably in uh, 10 more instructions right Now our contributions really to have a so called the uh, crash free execution model right So basically we force it to execute along a path and then we also prevent you from crashing How do we achieve that So how does a program crash you tell me how does a program crash Legal memory access? Exactly. Illegal pointers, right? So, what we can do here is that we detect the presence of illegal pointers, then we allocate piece of memory to, and then <laughs> give it to the pointer, and we just go ahead. Oh, don't laugh, but it actually works. <laughs> and, then we, and we got it published and we got it released to, to, to DAPA, right? So, nothing wrong with that. It works. And then we, we are able to uh, expose a lot of malicious behavior. Um, one of thing, things that I can, I skip all the uh, technical details. I will show you a little mm-hmm. bit of the demo, which is probably the last page of the demo. Um, so here we use our technique to analyze APT uh, malware. So uh, you all know APT malware, right? Uh, the ones that persistent attacks, right? Mm-hmm. They are kind of uh, very stealthy, and they because they hide themselves. Um, they try to perform the attack very slowly and gradually. How mm, okay. come? Here we uh, try to use XForce on a on a APT malware called DG003, and this one is a multi-stage, conditional guided, and environment-specific malware. If the condition is not right, it's not going to work. Okay, it's not going to turn on any of the malicious payload. It will just hide itself. It look completely normal, right? And then uh, basically we just skip right to the bot right to the end, and show you what's um, what we are able to do. Right? <coughs> this image actually shows you what we can do. Um, now this, this we are not the first one to analyze this malware. All right, we got it from uh, I believe yeah Sense Institute, and they, they actually have a thirty pages uh, report about this malware and they report part of behavior. And then we run our tool on this part of behavior, and we f- we found all this additional behavior that show on the, the left, cor- left top cor- uh, corner of the image. Right? So they correspond to the highlighted uh, places in the control photograph. So that the original report actually missed the behavior of delete a specific file, and then the malware update, and uh, the 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 most malicious behavior of this malware is delete all file on hard disk, and that's missed by the original report, and that's because uh, this payload can only be triggered under very specific conditions, and our techniques are able to force the the malware to execute along that condition, right? And uh, actually, when we run this malware and suddenly, i mean uh, we run it, and then we because the, the technique is currently slow we we run the script, and then we uh, kind of the student actually went to sleep, and the other day found out his entire hard disk is gone <laughs> <laughs> i couldn't figure out what's wrong, and then later on it, you know, by some manual inspection, we found that we probably should you know, be careful about this malware <laughs> just did it on your hard disk you. okay <clears throat> um. Uh, that's that. And currently, what we're doing is that we try to provide XForce as a web service. Okay, so we we're providing a web interface, and then you turn in your executable, and then you run it on our cluster, and then we're going to return you something like this, some graph like this. Okay, we're going to tell you all the behavior of your of your program. Okay, so uh, we are still uh, constructing the the website. And uh, currently, we can handle um, uh, simple malwares and hopefully. In the next few months, we should, we should get the website up, uh, running for probably much larger binaries. Probably that, at that time, you're gonna... How are you gonna do it for analyzing the numbers? if it's simple or not? we we'll look at the size. I mean, right now, it's pretty much by the size. Right? So a few hundred, I mean, a few hundred uh, kb should be fine. Right? So it's large. Um, more than that, probably will take a lot of time to, to execute all the path. So, I think I heard that uh, I should uh, present for 15 minutes. Right? So if you have any questions, let me know. Yes? So when you're scanning memory, do you deal with pages that have been swapped out to the hard disk? Can you find those? Uh, Yes, there's there's no difference for us. We actually can scan the swap file. Mm -hmm. Right. Does your code deal with that have been written as data obfuscated or uh, Which technique are you talking about? Uh, obfuscating data, like sometimes when we use IDA Pro to open a malware, right. uh, it, it's saved as data, not an actual
1: function. So you're talking about so packed
0: malware, basically. Uh, yeah. <coughs> yes, we do. I mean, X-Force actually handles packed malware. And the, this DG003 actually is packed. I mean, part of our uh, part of our demo, where we try to skip, when you open it with the IDA, you can only three functions. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then with our technique we see hundreds of functions. All right, So because we force it we force it to execute it, force it to unpack itself. So you see the entire picture of the, the ML. Okay. Any other questions? Okay, thank you.